Hey, it's really good to be with you this morning, and I'm really anxious to speak to you today <coughs> about that word that only two of you know, hermeneutics, right? Uh, when I was in uh, uh, Tacoa Falls, when I went my freshman year, I picked it up in the middle of the year, and that was the very first class I had. It was Dr. McGraw with hermeneutics, and I didn't even know what it was. And what's hilarious is I'm coming from an engineering degree at the University of Pittsburgh. I only had one more year, year and a half to, do, to get that, and I bailed on that. And, and some of you just need to know about engineers, and if you are an engineer... You're going to be like, I don't like it that he said that, but it's true. Engineers are very arrogant because we think we're smarter than everybody else. It's just who I was. It's who all my student, fellow students were. You know, it's like, well, what's your major art? Okay, sweetheart. You know, that's engineers have that kind of thing about them. There's an engineer's mother who's kind of smiling and nodding in the church. I just happened to notice. Uh, I was that way. And when I got to hermeneutics, I realized, whoa, I'm not quite as smart as I thought I was. I didn't even know what the class name meant. But we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning because I want you to have an understanding of uh, the passage we're going to be looking at. If you're in, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to chapter two of John. And if you have the uh, Uversion Bible app, there should be a Uversion uh, Bible app uh, event for this, and you can follow along that way if you'd like. But honestly, we'll be in John chapter two uh, for most of the passage this morning. Uh, we're going to read about eleven verses from there. And before we read, I want to talk to you a little bit about stories in general. And I've mentioned this in different ways uh, through the series on Bible stories. This is the 34th Bible story uh, that we've covered. You've probably picked up a lot of ground. And, and one of the women in our church who is uh, younger than I uh, has a couple kids. She said, you know, I grew up going to church, but I never really understood the stories the way I understand them now. And this is really helpful. I hope it's helpful to you as well. I, I want to just remind you of this, this reality, that every good story has a point. It's not just there, like, you know, every good story has a point. And one of the best storytellers ever was a guy named Dr. Seuss. Do you remember him? And, and if you read the Dr. Seuss stories, you, you see he's got a point. For example, Horton hears a who. Do you know the point? A person's a person, no matter how small. Yeah. Or what about um, the Grinch that stole Christmas? I'm talking about the animated one. Okay, because that's the one that's true to the, the text. <laughs> the true to the text sounds like I think that Seuss is biblical, doesn't it? <laughs> the point of the Grinch that stole Christmas, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe, just maybe, Christmas is a little bit more. That's the point. Wow, when I was saying that line, the grandmother was saying it with me. That's so cool, yeah. I love that story. Green eggs and ham. Try them, try them, and you'll see. Try them, and you'll see, Yeah. You may rather try them and you may. All those stories have a point. And of course, Bible stories have a point as well. They do differ from Dr. Seuss and Dr. Seuss is fiction and the Bible stories are not fiction. They're historical ones, but they still have a point. It's not just to tell you something that happened. Part of every good story has a point. And part of interpreting Bible stories is to ask yourself, what's the point of this story? And we've been doing that right along. What's the point of David and Bathsheba? What's the point of Noah and the ark? What's the point of the call of Abraham? What's the point of the Tower of Babel? We've looked at that question throughout this entire thing. That process of asking that question is is an important aspect of studying Scripture. So we're going to read John chapter 2. We're going to read 11 verses, probably a dozen sentences here. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what's the point? John's writing about Jesus. He says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. He thought the servants who had drawn the water, I'm sorry, although the servants who had drawn the water knew where it came from. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he received his glory and his disciples believed in him. (coughs) Okay, it's a great point, a great story rather. But what's the point? What's this miracle about? What is this story doing here? And evidently that is a harder question to answer than you might think because this past week I spent hours reading people's perspective, their interpretation on this passage and I I found that a lot of people, in order to come up with a point of this uh, message, they go through some hermeneutical gymnastics. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Well, hermeneutics refers to your technique of Bible interpretation. So people who, when they're interpreting the Bible, they're counting the numbers of the letters and the name, and they're connecting that up, and they're saying, aha, well, that points right to the President of the United States. That's a terrible hermeneutic. Terrible hermeneutic. And And you know it's terrible because... Once you live a few decades, you see it happening over and over and over again, and it's always wrong, right? Bad hermeneutics. Bad method of Bible interpretation. Hermeneutics is the science of making sense of the Bible, understanding what it's actually saying. And interpretation is really important. When you make a conclusion about anything that you read in the Bible, you're interpreting it. And you're using hermeneutics, whether you know it or not, you're using good ones or you're using bad ones. And sometimes your hermeneutic needs tweaking, I'm going to give you an example of this. It's from my dad. My dad passed away 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Um, he, uh, he had a particular perspective on a passage of Scripture, and his hermeneutic needed some tweaking on it. It came from a passage in Revelation, Revelation toward the end of the Bible. In chapter 22, verse 15, it's talking about the New Jerusalem, what we think of as heaven. And it says this, outside are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Catch that first phrase. Outside are the dogs. So what do you think? You think the scripture is referring to Fido there? (laughs) Is that what that verse is doing here? Is that the proper interpretation? That's what my dad said. There's no dogs in heaven. Disney is wrong when they say all dogs go to heaven. That was my dad's perspective. But if you do some investigating, if you do just a little bit of research, you can see that the Bible uses that noun, dogs, not to refer to canines, well, it does, but it also uses it metaphorically to refer to depraved people, to impudent, (laughs) to shameless persons. So good hermeneutics will tell you that that first phrase that's on the screen uh, of Revelation 22.15 might read, outside are the impudent shameless people. That's really what's going on there. I love my dad, (laughs) but I think he was wrong about his interpretation of Revelation 22.15. He needed a better hermeneutic. My dad's not alone. 
Interpreting Bible passages can be hard work. In fact, there are weeks when I spend hours doing just that. This was one of those weeks when I spent hours thinking, what is this miracle about? What is it, what, what is it here for? And really, the interpretative, interpretative difficulty of our Bible story today lies in those two questions. Why did Jesus do this? And why did John include it? Those are legitimate questions because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four biographies of the life of Jesus, we find recorded, depending how you count them, somewhere between 35 and 40 miracles performed by Jesus. John, when he's writing his story of Jesus, he only records seven of those. That's one in five. That's 20% of what he had to draw from is what he included. And among those seven, he includes this miracle. Why? Why did John put this miracle in there? Because John knows there's a whole lot more that he could put in there. As he concludes his biography of Jesus' life, he says Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world could not have room for the books that would be written. Of the countless (coughs) things that Jesus did, John took time with a pen. He wasn't using Microsoft Word. He wasn't using a big pen. He was using a reed pen to write this story. Why? Well, some people performed some interesting hermeneutical gymnastics to answer that question. In fact, some look at the opening words and say, ah, maybe this is about creation. You think, what? It's because of those four words in verse one, it says, on the third day. And when they look at that phrase, on the third day, their brain starts making connections that don't exist. Wow, can a human brain do that or what? On the third day. Well, that must be the third day of creation. What did God do on the third day of creation? He separated the land and the waters and every tree and fruit and vine was able to grow. And on those vines, you get grapes. And from those grapes, you get wine. And that's what's going on here. This whole miracle is put here just to let us know that Jesus is the creator. Oh, wow. Wow. That is some really complicated and convoluted hermeneutics to try to figure out what this thing's doing here. I just can't do that kind of thing. Let me give you another example. This is much more common. People apply this miracle to alcohol. And I, I read recently and I heard recently that there are individuals who say, well, you know, this is a seven-day feast. Jesus is bringing the booze. Jesus is getting people drunk. And uh, they, they literally feel like this is a way that Jesus advocates partying till you're drunk. That's just crazy. Do you know why that's crazy? (laughs) Because the Bible condemns drunkenness. It doesn't condemn drinking, but drunkenness, absolutely. Where? Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the writings of Peter. I mean, throughout there, you see over and over again that drunkenness is something that God does not advocate. And you can see why, right? You can see why. And so to think, well, yeah, that's what Jesus is advocating drunkenness or use of alcohol in excessive ways that's just kind of crazy but the gate swings both ways some people say well this is this is advocating and other people say this condemns drinking alcohol and i don't understand how they can say that but i heard what i consider to be good bible scholars presenting that opinion that's a really hard sell that this is to condemn the use of alcohol because remember there's no refrigeration and as soon as you begin to stomp those grapes they're going to begin to ferment Either way, either way, if you're building your perspective on alcohol based on this passage, 
You're missing the point of the text. Because this is not the point of the text. It's not the best in hermeneutics. Let me give you another example of the lengths people go to to explain why God has a story. In this book, there are some individuals who would say, some groups even, it would say, and there are various ones, that this is about getting Mary to pray for me. That's why this is here. And, and you can understand why, right? Because the thinking is that Mary is actually interceding on behalf of the family as she speaks to her Lord, to Jesus. So some conclude that we should ask Mary to intercede for us with Jesus. And intercession, it is a biblical thing. When someone asks me, Pastor, would you pray for me about this? They're asking me to intercede with Jesus for them. But I think that saying that that is why John put this story right here is kind of silly, especially when John, who tended to be really verbal, I mean, he wrote a lot of words. John was one of those guys that had a lot of words, right? And, and he never suggests that we do this anywhere else. It's just not the best in hermeneutics. What John does take time to record is where Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 14, you can ask me, you, you can ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So I don't really feel like any of those interpretations are doing justice to why this story's here. So why is this story here? Follow my thinking. In this story of Jesus' first miracle, we find a very important word in John's vocabulary. That word is believe. And you find it early on. I'm going to put scripture verses on the screen that demonstrate this. And early in the writing, in the very first chapter of the book, he's just seven verses into it, maybe less than a dozen sentences into his writing. And John is talking about John the baptizer or John the Baptist. And he says of John the Baptist that he came as a witness to testify concerning that light. The light, of course, is Jesus. So that through him all might believe. What was John the Baptist's purpose? To testify through the light so that you might believe. Believe. Um, again, John uses this word believe in chapter 1. In a passage that you might have memorized, I memorized this passage years ago, he says, yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does John say we're to do? To believe in his name. There's that word again. Think of the most popular verse in the whole Bible. It's probably John 3.16. Jesus is speaking in John 3.16. John is just writing it down. When Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does John say that Jesus wants us to do? Whoops. Believe in him. Believe in him. And even as John is approaching the end of his writing, he's written 20 chapters in this biography of Jesus, in this gospel of John. And in verse 30, he says what we've already talked about a little bit. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did John write this biography of Jesus? So that we could believe. So if you want a simple hermeneutic about the writings of John in general, you would have to say, John is writing this book so that we can believe. And he's recording this story because this miracle is to help people believe in Jesus. You might have noticed when we read the very last sentence of the story, back in chapter 2 in verse 11, it says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee 
was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Believed in him. They show, these do, that um, they show that God wanted people to believe in Jesus. And that was John's purpose. This story reveals what Jesus is like, this God that you're to believe in. And as you look just at this story, you you note some really important things about Jesus. One of them is, is he's the God who enters your life. John wants you to know that Jesus is not the kind you have to wind up on Sundays. You understand that fear of speech? It's not that kind of God. When you open your door to Jesus, he comes into your life and he stands right in the middle of it. He's at this wedding feast because he's been invited there. Jesus and his disciples had been invited there. He's joining this wedding feast. He's celebrating with this family. And a wedding, you know, today a wedding is maybe an entire afternoon and maybe into the evening, something like that, if you include a reception and everything. But then in these days, it was a seven-day event. Question, why would Jesus take this kind of time out of his ministry and his mission to be with these people? Answer, because people are the ministry. They are the mission. And John wants us to know that Jesus regards us in that fashion and that he comes to you and me. He was born in Bethlehem to be among us. He was growing up in Nazareth to be with his people. He interacts in this wedding to celebrate with this family. He enters our life because people are the mission. They're the ministry. And he wants to be in all of your life interacting in it. And that's why it never works to compartmentalize your Christian faith. Do you know what I mean when I say to compartmentalize your faith? It's like, okay, here's my time with Jesus over here, and this is me time over here. (laughs) That that never really works, right? When I was a kid, I was such a little legalist. (laughs) I can remember riding the the lawnmower, and I would sing to pass the time, right? And I'd sing one song by the Beatles, and then I'd sing a song from church. And then I'd sing another song by the Rolling Stones, and then I'd sing a song from church. And, uh, you know, I I just compartmentalized that, you know, back and forth. And, 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 And the fact of the matter is, Jesus wants to be in all of that. All of that. I can't be in church on Sunday and live one way and then after that live whatever way I want to the rest of the week. Jesus is in all of your life when you invite him to be in it. He's the God who enters your life and he's the God who responds to your need. Almost everything you read about this story notes that running out of wine was a pretty big problem in that day and age. There's a couple different reasons. One reason it's not written about a lot is because there was no Jeff Spade in Cana. No, he wasn't there. Some of you are like, I don't even understand that sentence. Jeff Spade is not here this morning because he works for the Water Authority, keeping the water in Kerbinsville drinkable. And we have great water. It's because of Jeff Spade and the system that is up on the hill that provides that water. I've never gotten sick from drinking the water in Kerbinsville. They take good care of it. But Jeff Spade wasn't working in the first century. (laughs) And uh, no one was. And that water that was there often had little tiny bugs in it that would make you pretty sick if you drank it. And the wine, the alcohol, was often added to purify it. So running out of wine at a wedding in an area that's very arid and hot and desert-like was not just a social blunder like, oh, how shameful about this. It actually put guests at risk. And that's probably one of the reasons Mary was concerned. She didn't want this family 
to become known as throwing a lame wedding, and she didn't want this family to become known as someone who made all their friends and family sick at that wedding. And so she went to Jesus and said, they have no more wine. We should probably talk about Jesus' response. Did you catch it in verse 4? Take a look at verse 4 for a minute. Woman, this is Jesus speaking, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. If I look at Carrie and I say, hey woman, get up here and help me lead this song. You're like, what is wrong with the pastor? That's just weird. If I had called my mom a woman, she would have educated me as to why I was not to do that early on, right? Yeah. But in the first century, that was not the case. It was actually a respectful way to greet a woman. You, you see Jesus using it from the cross of all places. In John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's dying, preparing to breathe his last. And one of the seven last words of Christ, one of the last phrases he says, is he happens to look at the disciple that he loves there and he sees his mother Mary beside him. And he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And John said, I'll take her to live with me. I'll take care of her. I'll treat her as though she's my mom. Woman, here is your son. He wasn't being disrespectful to Mary. Shortly thereafter, <laughs> Mary Magdalene's at the empty tomb. She's wondering, what is going on here? A couple of angels there. And one of them says, woman, woman, why are you weeping? The angel isn't being disrespectful to Mary Magdalene. The angel is calling her the way you would call anyone in that society. And just a few verses later, two verses later, Jesus shows up <coughs> and he says to Mary Magdalene, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And again, it's not disrespectful, it's proper. And even that thing where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, uh, that fits with the theme of Jesus, that Jesus is carrying this schedule throughout his ministry. He, he, he shows himself publicly when he's ready to show himself publicly. And he allows himself to be arrested when he's ready to be arrested. And he yields to crucifixion when it's the right time for the crucifixion. All those events seem to be on a timetable that is in God's mind. And turning water into wine, that could really tweak that schedule in a way that we don't want it to be tweaked. And that was Jesus' point there. If it isn't done carefully, it might throw everything off kilter. But here we are right now talking about the fact that Jesus did it. He turned the water to wine. He met the need. Because, it says it on the screen, he is a God who responds to your need. This Bible story is here to remind you of that. And it's here to remind you <coughs> that he is a God that you can trust to do the right thing. I love Mary's sentence in verse 5. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. I just get this picture of, Je of Mary walking in. She looks at Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> My time has not yet come. And she looks at him and she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And she just leaves. That's the picture I get. Why? Because Mary knows she can trust Jesus to do the right thing. He's got it. She just simply trusts. And this story helps you and I know that we can trust Jesus to do the right thing. And in this story, I learned that Jesus gives extravagantly. Extravagantly. There's a benediction in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Now unto him who is able to do above anything we can ask or imagine. And I want to tell you, he has done that for me. Above what I could ask or imagine. Over and over and over again. He does that. And he does it here. He doesn't just make any wine. He makes the best wine. The master of the ceremony says that in verse 10. He doesn't just make a little wine. He makes a lot of wine, more than they could possibly drink. Do the math. <laughs> Those jars, there's six of them. And the smaller is 20 gallons. The larger is 30 gallons. That means he made between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's not a bad wedding present right there, right? 
Great wine, lots of it to drink. You know, use what you need to. We'll sell the rest. We'll go to Paris for our honeymoon. Let's go. Right? <clears throat> He's a God who gives extravagantly. And this is a God that John wants us to believe in. The story is here so that we know that Jesus is a God who enters our life. The story is here so that we know that God responds to our needs. The story is here so that we know we can trust Him to do the right thing. Do whatever He tells you. The story is here so we know He gives extravagantly. But I'm going to be honest with you. okay? Real God, real life, real people. That's kind of our motto here. Sometimes it's really hard to trust God. You know it is, right? There are countless reasons we feel that way. Sometimes it just feels like He's not there. Have you experienced that? I have. And I think that's why John keeps pushing this issue. He wants you to know that if you've invited Him, He is in your life. He was at the wedding in Cana. He's in your life right now. Listen to this. He is in your ballgame. He is in your cancer. He is in your graduation. He is in your failures. He is in your romance. He is in your breakup. He is in your pay raise. And He is in your financial shortfall. John says, Jesus is right there with you in the middle of it all. He is. Right there. And you can believe that He's there. Sometimes, (laughs) He doesn't respond to our needs the way we'd like Him to. I mean, to be quite frank with you, (laughs) I have prayed a lot more prayers that Jesus seems to have not answered the way I wanted him to, that I have prayers he has answered the way I wanted him to. How about you? I mean, the, the, the balance is bizarre. Bizarre. And, and, and for that reason, sometimes it's kind of hard to think like, is he really there? Can I really trust him? And that's why John keeps pushing this issue for 21 chapters that you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him. That's why he put this miracle that no other gospel writer bothered to write down, he puts it in there because John knows that trusting God can be hard, especially when we feel like we know best. The miracle says you can trust him. When the answer to the prayer is just wait, you can trust him. When the answer to the prayer is no, you can trust him. And when the answer to the prayer is silence, Don't you hate that one? John is saying, you can trust Him. This miracle says to you, He responds to a shortage of wine at a wedding. He will respond to your needs as well. Trust Him. Sometimes it feels like He's not doing the right thing. Do whatever He tells you. I'm not sure I can say that sometimes. Because sometimes it feels like He allows evil to flourish just too much. Too much. We have all seen injustice prevail. Some of us have experienced personally injustice where it just seems like the score is never settled. We've all seen the wicked prosper and we've seen good people suffer greatly. And that can make it hard to trust God. But John is telling you by including this story that God is aware of what's going on and He does care about it and He does act. He will do the right thing. He did the right thing at this wedding. He always does the right thing. And John is saying that even when your happiest moments tend to go awry, even when the unexpected events are shaking your world, you can trust God. He does the right thing. 
And if we're honest, we'll say that sometimes God seems stingy. He owes the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How come I can't get a half a side of beef? <laughs> right? I can. But you get the point, right? If you look carefully, though, into your own life, you will see his provision in surprising ways because he provides above that which we could ask or imagine. He values things that are beyond our immediate physical needs. And he is providing for the long term that we can't even see sometimes. And so John is saying, God is providing for you and he will provide for you. Trust him. John puts this story here, all 180 gallons of it, (laughs) so that you know about God's overwhelming love for you and how you can trust him. His point in this whole book is that trusting God actually makes your life better. There's one person in this story who expressed faith in God. That was Mary. And because of her, her life was enhanced and the lives of everyone there was enhanced because trusting God always enhances your life. Trusting God is actually doing yourself a favor. But have you ever noticed sometimes people get that backward? I've talked to people who feel like if they believe in Jesus, they're kind of doing him a favor. Yeah, I, I accepted him to, into my heart. He looked like he needed to be in my heart, so I, I, I let him in. <laughs> really? Really? And maybe you've encountered people, people who, being a bit bitter, feel that if they refuse God, if they refuse to believe in him, then they're really they're hurting him. I will not believe in him because he didn't. It's kind of a vengeful thing. I've literally known people who have stopped professing faith in God because they were mad and wanted to hurt him. And so they refused to believe that he existed anymore. Think about that for a minute. I am so angry with God because he didn't do what I wanted him to do that I am not going to believe that he exists. How will he like that? (laughs) Do you see the ridiculousness of that thinking? It's just bizarre. You cannot hurt God by withholding faith. He doesn't need you to trust him. He doesn't need me to trust him. He didn't need Mary to trust him. He didn't need the disciples to trust him. He's God, and God will be just fine whether I trust him or not. He's God. He needs nothing. But you and me, man, I need to trust God. Because the opposite of everything we've been talking about today is despair. Trusting him brings hope. Failing to trust him brings despair. Trusting him enhances your life. I need to trust that He's there for me in my life. I need to trust that He responds to my need. I need to trust that He will do the right thing. I need to trust that He gives extravagantly. I need to trust God. We all do. The most essential thing in your life is to trust Jesus. And the most essential thing to trust Jesus with is your life. Your entire life. And that is why John put this story here, so that you would believe in him. That is why he wrote all these chapters, all the chapters in his gospel. He wrote them so that you would believe him. That is why he talks about signs, because signs always point to something. And a sign is pointing to the fact that you can trust Jesus with your very life. And when you trust him, you find life. You trust him that he died on a cross for your sins. You trust him that he carried away your guilt and your shame. You trust that he rose from the dead, demonstrating the sacrifice for your sin and mine was sufficient. 
And you trust that He calls you to be His own. And you turn away from your own sin. You turn away from selfishness, from shameful things. You quit being a dog in the biblical sense. (laughs) Right? You say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to follow You, Jesus. And you trust Him. His death on the cross for you. And the life He has in mind for you. And when you do that, everything changes. That is not just the point of the story of turning water into wine. That is not just the point of the story of the Apostle John. That is a point of the story of humankind. That you can trust Jesus. That you must trust Jesus. And when you do, everything changes. I want to pray that you would do that if you haven't done that. And I want to pray if you have done that, that your trust would be renewed. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? (coughs) Lord Jesus, we know that you're trustworthy. We hear that, we sing about that, we read about that, we experience that in our life. You're our Savior, our God. You're the one who gave yourself for us. Yet sometimes the life we live makes us wonder, why? Why did you let them run out of wine? (laughs) Why? In the midst of that, God, we might find ourselves tempted to not trust you, and we might not be aware that that road not trusting you leads us to a place spiritually and even emotionally that we don't want to be. A place of something very false, self-sufficiency, and eventually a place of despair. So today, God, anyone who's here that's never really considered your trustworthiness, pray that you would be at work in their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to them, they would consider this Christ who gave his life on the cross to pay for their sins. And that they would say, yes, I want to trust you, Jesus. I open the door to my life, to my heart. Would you come in? I will follow you. And that this would be a transitional moment this Sunday in May for them. When they are moved from a place of not trusting to a place of confident trusting in you. And I think of others of us, God, who have, who have maybe long ago placed our trust in you, but things of this world can be so distracting and can be so troubling that anxiety can fill our hearts and, and trust can be difficult to maintain. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading the Apostle John to put this story as one of the seven miracles he records. I would pray, Father, that we would, that we would choose to trust and choose to see your hand at work in our lives. We're not asking you to turn water into wine. We're asking for a bigger miracle than that, to turn our hearts toward you and to cement them into the pathway of following your will. Do this by the power of your Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Amen.
love this song. I don't have a lot of voice, so don't be shy.